So I moved to Arizona in December 2002 and uh, began pastoring, which means I've been doing this pastoring thing for quite a bit. And uh, over that time, I've had opportunity to, to be with people through a lot of different experiences and a lot of different moments. Um, some of those experiences, many of those experiences, have been wonderful things. So I've been able to walk with people through uh, experiences of, of marriages and of new children, uh, of grandchildren, uh, through uh, new jobs, new homes. So some wonderful things I've, I've been able to, to be around as people have experienced them. At the same time, uh, I've also uh, been with people through some very painful experiences. Over 20 years, uh, there have been divorces. Uh, there have been miscarriages relapses, layoffs. The good times, of course, are the ones we celebrate them. They give us hope for the future. Uh, but the painful times, the painful experiences, um, those are hard. Uh, they linger. Um, they last in our memories. Uh, they often sometimes are experiences that we, we seem to be in and never can figure out when we're going to get out of them, especially when we're in them. Uh, it's hard to know what to do with them. And, and and it's those sort of experiences that I want to sort of give some, some thought to this morning. What, what it is to go through pain and suffering. Uh, what we should think about those things. What should we think about, especially in relation to God. And we want to do that through this opening chapter of 1 Samuel. And, and this opening chapter tells us the life of a woman named Hannah. And what we'll do is, you just heard this story. And I want to sort of go back through the story, but point out really these three very painful experiences that she had all together uh, in her life uh, that we see from this story. What are some things that we want to sort of notice and draw from that? So the story begins with a man named Elkanah. He's got two wives, uh, Peninnah and Hannah. And Peninnah, she's got children. She's had children with Elkanah. She has sons and daughters, but Hannah has had no children. And that brings us to the very first experience of pain and suffering in this story for Hannah. Uh, it's the pain of infertility. Now, infertility is a big deal. It always is. It was an especially big deal back then. So back then, it was all about having children. Uh, if you had children, that's what, how you survive and thrive as a family. Children mean eventually more people in the family who could then help provide and support the family. It means eventually you're going to have people who can help in the fields. You can have people who can help in the shop, people who can help go fishing on the boat. Whatever it is, more children mean a family is more secure, more able to survive able to thrive, uh, but probably even more important for, for people back then was children ensured your family line would continue, your family legacy would last. And it was all about your legacy, all about the family name. This was everything for families back then. So if you're a woman with lots of children, uh, you're, you're valued, right? You're, you're appreciated, you're celebrated. If you're a woman who didn't have children back then, uh, you felt disgraced, uh, you felt worthless even. Now, I mean, looking at this, obviously you're seeing a kind of a, an idolatry of family here, like as if being a woman is all just about bearing children, right? That, that, that a woman's life could be reduced to that. We wouldn't want to say that, but it doesn't, doesn't make us escape from what we're, we're dealing with, at least right now, in this situation, in this culture, in this time period, that this is what it is. This is what Hannah is in. And so she's in a situation with a ton of social and cultural pressure. And of course, just her own sense of, her personal desire, her own sense of pressure. Her whole point, the, whole, the, the, the ultimate purpose for her as a woman, society was putting on her, everyone is putting on her, is to bear children, and she can't do it. And she has been unable to do it for a very long time. Notice it says in verse 7, 
Year after year, she went up to do the yearly worship at the temple in Shiloh. So year after year, she was going up, probably seeing the same people, and she's coming with just her husband. No kids. Year after year. Now, as we said, I mean, this kind of cultural obsession they had back then, we, we, don't, we don't approve it. We wouldn't say that was right to, to, to reduce women to just bearing children. We don't want to say that. And yet, I mean, let's acknowledge that it's not like she's wanting a bad thing. I mean, that's what hurts here. It's not like the answer here is for her to not want to have children. I mean, what she wants is something fundamental, something good, a great thing. She wants to be a mom. She wants to be able to bear children, to raise them. She wants to do it, and she can't do it. And I, I'm speaking on this topic not as someone who, who knows personally what it's like. I don't want to suggest I do. Uh, but as someone who's, who's been around for a while now and, and spoken to many different people who've who've gone through experiences like this, I mean, the sense of God is that it's incredibly painful. This is something like deep, innate within you, right? That you, like, what do you do with it? Like, you do, do you push it down? Do you, do you try to ignore it? Like, it's just, it's natural. It's, it's a natural thing to want. It's upsetting. It's frustrating. It's heartbreaking. It's disappointing. In some ways, it feels worse than being physically hurt. Because if you're physically hurt, then there's things you can do to, to cure yourself, right? To heal. With this, if you're infertile, it's just, there's, not, what do you, you, there's nothing to do about it. It's where you are. It's, it's what you have. There's, there's no healing from it. It's a situation that you're in. So this is, this is what Hannah has, the pain of infertility, the, the pain and suffering that comes from, from not being able to bear children as desperately as she wants to. That's not the only thing she's facing. The other sort of second painful experience that she has, what I'm calling the pain of a difficult home life. As we saw in, in, in the story, Hannah is in a polygamous marriage. And so and let's, as should hopefully be obvious, that's not a good thing. <laughs> um, Jesus in Matthew 18 is very clear. Marriage is set up between one man and one woman. That's the way it's supposed to be. You look uh, throughout the Bible, there's no place in the Bible where you see a story about a polygamous family and it's like a good story. <laughs> right? Not one place. They're all miserable. Right? From, uh, I think one scholar puts it this way. From first page to the last page, the Bible, every time it, it, it shows polygamy, it's trying to show you this does not work, right? Sometimes it says it directly, Jesus saying one man, one woman. Other times it's just telling you the story, and you're like, this is terrible, right? Over, over the place it's showing that. We know God's opinion on it, but as often happens when we know God's opinion, but we know what we want. And we think we can do other things. We can compromise. We can sort of hear what God says, but compromise. And I think that's what Israel often would do knowing what God says and still do other things, and especially they look at what the other nations were doing and think like, well, we can make this work. And I think that's sort of what's going on here. We just talked about the cultural obsession with family. We've got to have kids no matter what, no matter the consequences. I think that's what happened here. Elkanah, uh, and only people with means were able to do that, so they're probably a family that's relatively well off. Uh, he sees, feels the importance of carrying on his family line. His first wife, Hannah, is not able to do that, uh, and so he marries another woman by whom he can have children, carry on the family line. Uh, and, and, and so that's what he does, and that's what happens. But also, we saw in the story that Hannah was the first wife. She's the favorite wife, the wife who, who, who has his heart. We see that in verse 5. So Elkanah, bringing a second wife, I mean, you could see, you could see this. Like, this is only going to make things worse, doesn't it? Sure, he's got the kids, carry on the family line, right? But the second wife immediately becomes a rival. She harasses her harasses Hannah for being childless. Verse 6 of chapter 1 of 1 Samuel. 
and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. This went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. And this is a cruel thing to do, uh, but I think it, it makes sense why this happens. Um, the second wife is not as loved as Hannah, and she knows it. It's obvious. I mean, Elkanah, when they go up for the yearly worship at Shiloh, gives a double portion to Hannah, right? Uh, she knows she's there to provide children, and, and that's pretty much it. Um, Elkanah is a husband, he's a good husband in the sense of he's providing food and, and shelter and other things for, it says he provides for them, right? He provides for them, but Hannah has his heart. And so this second wife takes it out on Hannah. So what does that mean? Again, the pain of a difficult home life, of imagine she's, she's childless, it's deeply painful, and she's being reminded of it all the time, probably daily, all the time being ridiculed, constantly have it thrown her face in her home, in her place where she, you might say she, at least she's walking through the village and you know, she hears the whispers, the people looking, maybe some people saying, so eh, nothing going on yet? I mean, what's happening, right? So you think, okay, I've walked through the village market to get the things I need for our family. And, and yet again, I, I, see the, the, I see all these kids running around and it reminds me it's painful and she goes home and she's reminded of it yet again. She has it thrown in her face yet again. Here's this other woman, this other wife who's able to be the mother that she can't be. And her husband, Elkanah, legit loves Hannah, right? But, uh, you know, man, sometimes we, we mess up here, and like he, <laughs> this is not great, what he says here. <laughs> um, <laughs> Hannah is in such deeper pain, right? She can't even eat when they go up for the yearly worship. And here's what this guy says. He says, verse 8, And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? I mean, brother, let's help him out, right? I, th <laughs> I think he meant to say, you are worth to me more than ten sons, right? Like that's, I wish I could just sort of jump in the text here and like help him out, right? Because <laughs> I can just imagine like how she felt right here in this. But he said what he said, <laughs> right? Um, and look, I, the, the, text, the passage shows he does love his wife. I think he meant best. But that sometimes happens when people are in deep pain. People don't say quite the right things. <laughs> they think in, in ways, they think like, oh, that's what she wants to hear, right? <laughs> that's not it, right? I mean, she still doesn't eat, <laughs> right? So a difficult home life, the pain of that. Um, the last experience of pain and suffering is worth mentioning here. It's called the pain of poor spiritual leadership or poor spiritual community. In going through something like this, you want your spiritual leaders and spiritual communities to understand, to be supportive, to be encouraging. And oftentimes they are, uh, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes we're not. Sometimes we, we, we're not as supportive and encouraging as we should be. Uh, and that's what happens with Hannah. So as we said, Hannah, difficult home life. Reminded constantly of being childless. Year after year, they go up to Shiloh, and year after year, she has no, no children. And one of these years, she goes up, and she goes to the temple to pray. And as she's praying, the priest completely misses what she's doing there. So let's, let's read what happens. Verse 9. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, will give to your servant a son, 
then I will give to him, I'll give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. So what she was praying was, was called a Nazarite vow. Right? It's one of the ways you would dedicate yourself to the Lord. And you would show that sort of by doing these sort of physical things. You wouldn't drink wine, you wouldn't cut, you would leave your hair long. It was a way of sort of saying, I'm physically dedicated to the Lord in a way that represents spiritually what I'm going to be doing. And a lot of times people would do that for set periods of time. This is different. She's saying, I'm willing to say this is, this is what he will, will do as his career, as his life. Commit her child to serve the Lord for his whole life. And that's what she's praying. That she's able to have a child, that the Lord will grant that. Verse 12. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved. Her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. And this is, this is bad. It's a bad mistake. <laughs> it's a bad mistake by Eli. And a little bit of foreshadow. It says something a little bit about his, his spiritual uh, discernment. That he can't tell the difference between someone who's passionately praying and someone who's drunk, right? More, more to say on that, sadly, later on in the series. <laughs> um, but, of course, I mean, this comes at a very bad time for Hannah. She's at the end of herself. Rather than being comforted, she's accused of being drunk. Hannah, I mean, praise God, she's gracious, right? She could respond in anger, but she, I think, is gracious towards someone who's, who's not measuring up uh, like we would want him to. She explains to him, verse 15, but Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Eli quickly recovers, realizes his mistake. He says this, verse 17, and Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. She said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. So we've gone through her, this chapter and, and seen from her life three experiences of pain and suffering. We've seen uh, the, the experience of, of her of being childless, the experience of her difficult home life, the diff- experience of not being supported by her spiritual leaders and community. All happening in, in one person's life. And it's worth at least pausing here before we continue on and just voicing maybe the obvious thing that we're thinking right now in our, in our heads is, is why? Like why is this happening to this person? But really maybe a, 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 a deeper question to ask here is why is God allowing this to happen? What's God doing here? Because it's one thing to say like this is, I'm in the midst of pain and suffering. It's one thing to say that, but it's people who believe that there's a God. The, 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 the more painful thing to ask and to wrestle with is, is why God hasn't said anything or done anything. That's the real pain here, isn't it? Because we know God could prevent much of this. He, uh, the poor spiritual care that she has, the difficult family situation. That, I mean, the infertility specifically says the recognition that God had closed her womb, verse 5, verse 6, that God is allowing her to be in this position, to be infertile. It's a natural question. And I'm going to let that hang in the air a little bit. And let's continue on in the story and sort of come back to, to how the different ways we want to think about that question. Because the story now makes a big turn. You see here that there's an answer. The Lord answers her prayer, finally. Elkanah and Hannah conceive a child. She gives birth to a son, Samuel. And Hannah follows through on what she says. She dedicates him to the Lord. So what that means is that Samuel is going to basically live at the temple uh, at a very early age. Uh, it was almost like he's going to do boarding school 
uh, but at a very early age, right? And his, she says she'll do it after she weans him. In that culture, that would have been anywhere between three to five years old. So they did that way longer back then. Um, and so when that happens, when she's weaned him, she brings him there, and he's going to be an apprentice priest, uh, sort of starting training from, from, from early on age to, to serve the Lord there. Verse 26, so she comes back before the priest, before Eli, and bringing Samuel with her. And she said, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he, that Samuel, worshiped the Lord there. And I think that last phrase there is that sense that Samuel, from early age, sort of had felt called. Like that, that idea that like, he was worshiping God at this extremely early age. Um, it, it says something about, I think, even at this point, what he, he knew God was calling him to do and how he was moving into that. And so we think then about that question, what was God doing? There's a way we can answer that at a very bigger level. We, we can answer that seeing now what's going to happen in the rest of the book of Samuel, right? One basic answer to, like, what was God doing? There's a bigger plan that God was having. He was setting up a way for which Samuel to be raised to be basically a leader of Israel. He was going to be one of Israel's last judges. Judge is just the Bible's word for, I'm going to say, being a tribal leader, right? So Israel throughout its the history at this point, the last couple decades or centuries, had um, tribal leaders who would be raised up to save the people, to rescue the people from their enemies. And he's going to be one of the last ones, and that's what happens. He ends up leading Israel, helping Israel be saved from some of the attacks that will be coming, we'll read about. Um, he's also someone who's going to help transition Israel to a monarchy. Um, and in this bigger picture, he's helping to ensure that Israel continues on as a people. And eventually from Israel will come all the things that we know about God, the ways in which God will, will bring about a, a savior to the world. And so there's a bigger plan here, right? There's a bigger plan here that God is doing. And that's important to say uh, as we think about that question, what is God doing? Like, what is God doing in the midst of pain and suffering? That God, an answer is, yeah, God is working. He's working to bring about his good. He works to bring about his good across the years, across the centuries. He does it through human experience. He does it through our pain and suffering. There's the bigger answer. But I, I'm going to, um, I want us to do something a little bit harder this morning. To just do that bigger answer. As good as that answer is, um, what I want to do is, is, Think about the answer, what is God doing? And think about that answer at the ground level. Like when you're in the midst of pain and suffering, when you don't know the rest of the Bible, right? Because, I mean, we can read the Bible and it's easy for us to look at these stories and look at them and know what's, com what's coming and that's, the Bible wants us to do that. It's a helpful, helpful reminder to us. But now we gotta apply those situations in our own lives. I don't have a Bible of Ramon, right? I don't know. What's going to happen in future chapters? I can have some guesses, right? There's some things, some trajectories I seem to be still on that I'm going to continue on, right? Things that I care about and do, right? That, that's still there. But the reality is, if I'm right in the midst of pain and suffering, we don't know when we're right there. We don't know what's going to happen. And what God is doing isn't totally clear. So how do we answer that question? Well, one thing we should say is we don't answer that question by thinking, well, to make sure God does what you want when you're in the midst of pain and suffering, just pray hard enough. If you pray hard enough, you'll get what you want. You can look at the story and think, like, that, that's what Hannah did, right? See, what happened? She prayed hard enough, God did what she wanted. That's it, right? If you don't get what you want, man, you, you messed up. You, you need another hour of prayer, right? You didn't give enough to the church, right? You didn't do uh, volunteer enough hours, right? You 
don't have enough pets at your house. You don't recycle enough. I mean, you just go on and on, right? All the different things that you should be doing, good things you should be doing. That's supposed to make God do what you want. That's, that's not what to think about here because Hannah actually does not get what she really wanted here. You think about this. Look at this story. Hannah has Samuel. She gives birth to a boy. She weans him and then brings him to the temple to be raised as an apprentice priest. So what does that mean? That means Samuel is not going to be around to help provide for the family. It means Samuel is not going to be carrying on the family name. He's, he's serving the temple, serving God's people in general. It means, as far as everyone knows, she's still childless. She's still going to walk to the village market to get the food and other things, and people will still see her without kids. She's still going to walk back home and not have kids while the second wife has all the kids and probably still is harassing her about it. Still going to look down, be looked down by his local community. Now, a side note here, does, Hannah does have children later on, right? And, and it's amazing, right, that that has happened. But again, I'm wanting us to sort of think about this question, not knowing what's about to happen, but thinking about where Hannah is right now. As far as she knows, Samuel is it. That's it. Chapter 2 mentions Hannah visits Samuel year after year at the temple. And that means, so for many years after she had Samuel, she was remained childless. As far as we know, and I don't think she would maybe even stop praying, but she, as far as she know, God gave me Samuel, and that's it. So how did she learn to accept that? How did she come to that place? That's what I want to ask. How do you come to that situation? What is God doing? How is he working? How is that possible? Well, to answer that, Three things we'll, we'll go through here at the end here. Number one, one very real fact about God, pain and suffering. Number two, the needed response to this very real fact about God, pain and suffering. And number three, the result that happens when we respond to God in the midst of pain and suffering. So number one, what's one really real and hard fact about God, pain and suffering? Here it is. God does give us lives that will bring us pain and suffering and some of us will experience more of it than others. God is in control of all things, and, and that means God is doing good things. And again, this big meta level, he's bringing about good, beautiful, wonderful things, right? A restoration of, of the world, right? I mean, all these things God is doing. But how we get there won't be easy, and for some of us, it's going to be harder than others. And I say this because it's one of those things that sometimes when we talk about pain and suffering, we can talk about it in this big general way. Here's pain and suffering, and here's how we deal with it, and that's, that's important to say. But the harder thing underneath that is to say, it's not just generic pain and suffering. There's pain and suffering. We all go through it, but some of us go through a lot more of it than others. And that stinks. That's, that's a hard truth, but it's a real truth. It stinks. Some of us go through it more than others. Pain and suffering is not equally distributed. Some of us go through a whole lot more trial in life than others. And sometimes it makes sense. A lot of times it doesn't make sense. Sometimes right now you're still trying to make sense of it. That's a real fact about God, pain, and suffering. We go through it, and some of us more than others. But how do we respond to that? How do we respond to that? How, this gets at, like, so how do we deal with not knowing what God is up to? Well, here's the second thing you want to say. The response is this. We should respond to pain and suffering with honest, earnest, passionate, even raw prayer to God. I think the phrase that best describes Hannah's response to this 
is what she says here in verse 15 when Eli thinks she's drunk and she says this. I was pouring out my soul before the Lord. Hannah comes to God in prayer and she bears her soul. She holds nothing back. And, and to be clear, that means she's saying all that she thinks, all that she feels to God. Notice it says there in verse 10, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She comes before God in the midst of her deep anguish and despair. This is raw, messy, snotty nose, tears running down your face, crying out to God, sometimes on your knees, hands in the air, begging God, pleading with God kind of prayer. That's how Hannah is praying. And understand, she's not praying the acceptable emotions to God, the nice ones. She prays to God, it says there in verse 16, out of her great anxiety and vexation. It's another translation. I like it a little bit better. It says this. She prays from the depth of her anguish and resentment. She doesn't wait until she's not anxious and angry and resentful anymore to talk to God. She brings her anger and resentment and anxiousness right to God in prayer. And we already read that Hannah's been childless for a while. So I don't think it's too much to say that I don't think this is the first time she's prayed to God like this. Just based on her character and, and, the, and the prayer that we find in chapter 2, I think she knows she's been talking to God a whole lot. <laughs> year after year, she's been praying to God like this. And probably year after year, she's been bringing all this to him. This is how she's been. She's been honest and real before God. And I think this is how it's got to be. If you're in pain and suffering, you've got to be real. You've got to be real with God. And anyone who tells you differently is wrong. You've got to be real with God. Our relationship with God will involve structured, well-put-together prayers. It should, right? There's, there's, there's relationships, my relationships with people have organized times to it and, and formal times to it, right? So relationship with God, we'll have that, but our relationship with God will also have raw, messy, anguish times with God. A whole relationship with God has to involve both. It can't be involved all the times we're put together. It's got to involve also the times in which you don't know what's going on and you're telling God, what are you doing? Where are you? I'm talking to you. I need to hear from you. I'm in anguish and despair here. I'm dying here, God. I will die. I want to die. God, I'm bringing this to you when we're at the end of ourselves, not just when we're full of ourselves, of life and vigor. It's when we're at the end of ourselves in tears and laments and lament that we got to bring it to God. And the reason we say this is because we have a God who can handle that. The throne room of God is not just places for us to sit and have formal dinners with him. And the throne room of God is us, a place for us to sit and collapse on our knees to beg him to answer. God can handle us praying to him out of our sadness in our situations. He can handle us praying our resentment and anger that the situation hasn't changed. He can handle us praying our fear and anxiety because we fear that situation will never change. Pain and suffering is real in ways that overwhelm us. And the way we deal with it, the way we relate to God, can only happen by saying, I'm going to be real, God. I'm going to bring this to God. Pain and suffering, in fact, is one of the ways we can be real with God in ways that maybe we haven't been in a long time or never have been. Where God actually touches the parts of our lives that need to be touched. 
we respond to God by, and again, the temptation oftentimes is to move away from God in pain and suffering. And it's the exact wrong instinct. You're moving away into spaces where like your, your fears and your, your tears or resentment will just echo in the darkness and fall back on yourself. What God is saying is like, look, come and do it in front of me at least. That's how we respond in pain and suffering. Bringing it to God, an honest look, God, this is how I think, this is how I feel. It's in that place as we come before God, especially in the midst of the deepest suffering that we have this result, that we find that God will be with us through all pain and suffering, and he will especially be near those who experience it the most. One of the things, I think one of the most important things that happens in this story isn't just that uh, she gives birth to Samuel, or even that like many, many years later she has children. I think one of the most important things that happens in the story is what happens after she prayed her raw prayer to God. You notice what happens after what it says? Verse 18. It's a short verse. Here's what it says. Then the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. This whole chapter has been about the deep pain and suffering of Hannah. But here, for the first time, we see something different. Something different going on. She made God hear her pain and suffering. She wept before him. She cried out to him. And in that place, that very real, very sacred encounter with God, something happened. And what happened? Wasn't God guaranteeing that she was going to have children? There was no guarantee, no audible voice from God in that moment. It was something more of an experience she had, an experience with God where she realized and knew without a doubt that this God is not callous, unfeeling, unsympathetic to what she's going through, even though he's allowing her to go through it. What she encountered was that God was with her. She was not alone. In her cries and her tears, God did not walk out of the room. Even when she said things she probably shouldn't have said. God did not walk out. He did not run away. God was there. He was near to her. Such that as she vented herself before God and poured out her soul before God, she was able to leave that prayer, yes, still in pain, still in loss, but not trapped in it. Unable, not in that unable to eat, unable to move kind of sadness. It's God showing he's with her, near to her, even when we can't discern his will for us. And we can't completely figure it out. This prayer of hers that she says in, in verse 11, I want you to notice, it's really about her asking God to notice her in her affliction, to remember her, to not forget her, to not be distant from her, what she prayed for him. And in fact, I think she assumes that this happened, that this God, the, she calls him the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, this mighty God who's over all things, cares enough about this very, this rural woman in this small part of Palestine, that she believes that this God, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the universe, the creator of all things, notices her, comes near to her, listens to her. Think about the audacity of that. That in her prayer, she realized this God, who has a lot going on, cares about me in my situation. That's why I think it's notable that she names her son Samuel. It means God hears. It means she realizes Whatever happens, I can say God does pay attention. It's how I think she could be led to pray the prayer that she prays about Samuel. How is she able to dedicate Samuel to the Lord? I think it's in that space that she was actually then able to be moved towards what God was wanting to do ultimately. 
to raise Samuel up as a future prophet and leader of Israel. See, it's when we are most hopeless and it's when we are most empty that God is able to move in. It's like when we're most hopeless, enough space is, is created in us for God to move in and fill us with his love and his hope and his peace. And why is that the case? Is because when we're most hopeless, we're most emptied out that God himself is able to move more in us. Space is created within us to experience the hope and the peace we need because we're experiencing God being more with us. While it's true, some of us will go through more pain and suffering in our lives. I also think that means those of you who do, will also have more of God in you. Because what happens as you move into that, that sacred encounter with God and you begin to unload all that you have before the Lord, God inevitably moves closer to you to give you what you need, to give you the hope and the peace and the trust that God is working even if you don't understand all that's happening, even if you're still waiting for the other chapters to be written, to help you even know more of what his will is to be able to pray it and still trust him. How can I say that? How is it true that God can move towards us in that way? How can I say that God especially moves towards us in pain and suffering? I could say that because of Jesus. See, the reality of Jesus means that in the memory of God right now is what it's like to go through the worst pain and suffering. Part of God's existence is remembering always what it is to suffer on the cross for our sins, to die in our place. That pain and suffering is not something God is studying from afar. It is something that is part of his living memory. And that's why he especially hears us in those moments. He had to go through it in order to enact his big plan. So when we have to go through it, that's why we can say he especially hears us right near there. That's why we can claim the promises of 1 Peter 5, 7 and Hebrews 13, 5. Here's what it says. Cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Hebrews, for he will never leave you nor forsake you. Never leave you. Never forsake you. His care for us means his presence with us and all that that brings. His peace, his hope, his trust come with us. A friend of mine, Pastor Darrell Williamson, uh, some of you met him. He preached here end of August. Um, I want to finish with this quote. Uh, it's a post he put, actually. Um, his son died in his 30s. Uh, his mother died uh, when she wasn't really not all that old. Uh, and his, it was his only son. He has one daughter. Um, he had this son, and his son died at a very young age. Uh, gone through, through tremendous hurt. Um, I mean, it was, it was devastating. Uh, it was just a, a tragic accident that happened. But he posted this recently, and it really struck me, what he said. He said, he said this. And if grief and pain have taught me, has taught me anything, it's taught me to love more and rely on God more. Grief is more than something to be carried. It is a space to experience the love of God deeply and powerful. That doesn't make grief good, but it makes God gracious. That's my experience of grief and the observation of others. So may that be our prayer, that God would be ever with us and near to us in our pain and suffering. May we trust him to provide answers, whether now or maybe many years in the future. And may, in those answers, may we see that God is revealed to be who we know him to be. The Lord God, mighty and strong, 
the pull of steadfast love and compassion and grace for those who belong to him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. And Lord, uh, to pray, uh, to preach about pain and suffering is 100% guarantee that there's those who are experiencing it right now. So I pray this prayer specifically for them, especially those who've experienced it in ways, Lord, that are, are far worse than, than I have and others. Lord, uh, may even the smallest whisper of their heart, the smallest grunt, uh, Lord, the, the tears that may fall on their face now or in the future, Lord, may that be an opportunity for you to move ever closer to Jesus. Lord, I'm bold enough to say, Lord, provide more answers to what you're doing. It helps a lot, God. It really does. But, Lord, answers are also not enough. We can have the answers, but what we, even if you knew why these things are happening as the good, and you see the ultimate good, what we really need is your peace, your nearness to us. And come near to us and bring us your peace, especially in Jesus, Lord. That's the testimony of Scripture. Lord. We have found a way through our pain and suffering, through our sin, in and through Jesus. It's a reminder, Lord God, that you speak to us not in a distant way, but in a very near way to us. Lord, draw near, reassure our hearts. Lord, uh, may those, Lord, who experience these things, Lord, especially even now, Lord, be blessed to have more of you in their life. May they be blessed to have more of your hope and peace in their life. And may they be blessed to have better sense of where you are leading us and better sense of what you are really doing in this world. Lord, may that be a testimony of the kind of God that you are and the kind of people you want to be. Thank you for who you are. I pray this in Jesus' name.